Have you ever been in an argument with someone who said something that you regretted? You know, in the heat of the fight you said some not-so-nice things that you were sorry you said as soon as you said them, as soon as the words came out of your mouth. And as you calm down, you apologize and tell the other person that you did not mean what you said. I mean, you want to bring the relationship back to some state of health, you want to repair the damage you've done, and so you sincerely let them know you did not mean what you said. And yet you know, and they know, that you are not really sorry and that you did mean what you said when you said it. It's like you have allowed a lot of things to build up on the inside, not dealing with them as they arise, and then some small, often insignificant thing happens, and the simmering volcano erupts in a big way. You speak and you deeply wound the other person with your words. Jesus has an insight or two into this behavior pattern, but you need some background to the scripture that we're going to look at first. In the religion that Jesus was born into, the Jewish faith, certain religious rulers over thousands of years had been establishing secondary rules to keep people from breaking a primary rule. These rules, these rulers, actually made a career out of creating secondary rules to help people to keep the main commandments that God had handed down to them through the ministry of their leader, Moses. God gave Moses ten commandments and a variety of other laws for the people to keep. And by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, more than 600 rules had been added to the laws handed down to Moses by God himself. And this ever-growing body of regulations was called the tradition of the elders. And its sole purpose was to prevent the Jewish people from accidentally breaking one of the original commandments. For example, the law of Moses forbade commerce on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was a day of rest. So they added a cause that for a clause, sorry, that forbade the handling of money on the Sabbath, therefore ensuring that no one would violate the original Sabbath law. Over time, the religious leaders had assigned to these traditions a status equal to the law of Moses. And to the continued chagrin of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the religion in Jesus' time, he paid very little attention to their traditions. While he and his disciples observed the Mosaic Code, Jesus seemed to go out of his way to violate the man-made laws of the Jewish hierarchy. And the religious authorities would often point to these infractions as evidence of his blatant disregard for the law, thereby refuting his claim to be a spokesman for God. Matthew records one such incident. Interestingly, the rule that got Jesus into hot water on this occasion was a rule that most parents have in their home while raising children. He forgot, uh, well, I guess Jesus never forgot. He decided not to wash his hands before he ate, and his disciples followed his lead. This was seriously troublesome to the Pharisees, just as it is to most parents. According to the tradition of the elders, everyone was supposed to wash from the tips of their fingers all the way down or up to the elbows before eating any food. As picky as this might seem, 
The tradition of the elders went to great lengths to explain how one should wash his hands before eating. Beyond basic hygiene, this rule was designed to keep people from accidentally becoming ceremonially unclean. That is, it kept a person from unintentionally or accidentally putting the wrong thing or something that had touched a wrong thing into his or her body. But washing your hands before a meal wasn't required by the Law of Moses. Sure, it was a good idea, but the rabbis made it a standard for righteousness. And over time, this rule had taken on the same significance in the Jewish community as, and in their individual households as the original Law of Moses, handed down at Mount Sinai. But Jesus ignored the rules and didn't insist that his follower apply the rules either. Here's how the whole thing went down as recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Verses 1 and 2 state, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. These guys clearly needed something to do. Here they are, standing in the presence of the man who heals the sick, raises the dead, and calms the seas with his words, and they are in a tizzy about the fact that he doesn't wash his hands before. Jesus answers his, their question with a question. He often did this. Jesus seldom directly answered anyone's questions. He answered them in verse 3 and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, he turns it right back around on them. The Pharisees accuse him of ignoring the rules that they had tacked onto the law. Jesus, in turn, accuses them of breaking God's law in order to keep one of their tacked-on rules. And then before he could, they could respond, he launches into a scathing mini-sermon. And he doesn't hold back. He calls them hypocrites. He accuses them of nullifying the word of God for the sake of their homemade traditions. I mean, his comments are seriously brutal. And as soon as he finishes with the Pharisees, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, who, by the way, were probably busy high-fiving each other over the spectacle of seeing the religious referees beaten at their own game. And Jesus picks up on the cleanliness theme the Pharisees had introduced. Verse 17, Do you not see that whoever go, whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and expelled? Now, there's an insult, insight. What enters a person's mouth will ultimately pass through the body. Wow, I doubt that anyone wrote that down, of course, except Matthew in the Gospel. And now that he has their undivided attention, Jesus drives home his point. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. His point? God isn't nearly as concerned about what goes in our mouths as he is about what comes out of our mouths. God isn't nearly as concerned about what goes into our bodies as what comes out of our bodies. This was new territory for the Jews. They were extremely cautious about what they put in their mouths. Now Jesus was saying that God was more offended by what came out than what went in. It was this comment that had gotten their attention. Verse 18, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. 
the heart. Everything that comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. Everything? Did he really mean that? And at first glance, we are inclined to disagree. I mean, surely not everything that comes out of our mouths originates in our hearts. Even those angry words we spoke in the heat of an argument from our heart? You know, the ones that deeply wounded the other person? The words we said we didn't mean? If you were like me, there have been plenty of times when you said stuff you didn't really mean, and I surprised myself sometimes. Again, we're all we've all covered our mouths and muttered, I don't know where that came from. Apparently, Jesus would respond, I know where it came from. It came from within. It came from your heart. And it gets worse. Jesus goes on to say that the heart is responsible not only for our words, but also for our actions and deeds as well. Verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Evil thoughts? I thought those my thoughts originated in my mind. And if Jesus is right, and I'm betting he is, my mind isn't the source of all of my thoughts. It goes deeper than that. My evil thoughts and my hurtful words originate in my heart. Luke 6.45 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. And take a look at the other items on the list. They're all actions, deeds, behaviors, and they all come from the heart. Again, verses 19 and 20. For all of the heart, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The implications of this are huge. At times we have trouble monitoring our behavior while pretty much ignoring our hearts. After all, how do you monitor your heart? And keeping an eye on my behavior is easy. And I often fail to do that even. And often I have lots of help with that, as people will quickly draw my attention to those things that I do that are not right. But my heart? That seems a bit more complicated. And if the items on Jesus' list emanate from the heart, then clearly we need a new monitoring strategy. After all, if we knew how to monitor our hearts, if we knew how to deal with trouble at its source, then perhaps we would see a marked improvement in our behavior. All of this makes me wonder why no one ever taught us to do this. It gives me plenty of room for thought, and hopefully that thought will be followed by action. But you know, Jesus wasn't the first to point out the importance of the heart. Nearly a thousand years earlier, before Jesus' birth, Solomon echoed Jesus' concern when he wrote in Proverbs 4, verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, from it flow the springs of life. Here we're actually commanded to watch over, or better word, guard our hearts. Why? 
Because our lives, our words, our behaviors flow from our hearts. The heart is the source. Somehow, what's in our hearts, good or bad, seems to be eventually translated into words and deeds. That's a bit scary, especially since it's hard to know what's going on in there. It's hard to monitor the heart. So, for example, when we see or hear something and suddenly we're overwhelmed with emotion, we think, that really touched my heart. And we're always surprised when it happens. Why? I think it's because we're so much out of touch with our hearts. On the flip side, we've all seen and heard things that should have affected us emotionally and nothing. I mean, no response. And we wonder, what's wrong with me? Why was everyone else impacted and I just stood there unmoved? Perhaps you've even been accused of being hard-hearted or having a heart of stone. And if you're a guy, you may have even taken pride in the fact that your heart's not easily moved. But I ask you, is that a good thing? Is that even true? You see, the heart is such a mystery. In fact, one prophet asked of the heart in Jeremiah 17:9, who can understand it? Good question. The implication is nobody can understand it. And I agree with Jeremiah. And I would add, even if we do begin to understand it, we certainly don't seem to be able to control it, which is all the more reason we need to learn to monitor it, because what you don't know can and will hurt you and others. If you have suffered the consequences from anything on Jesus's from the heart list, you know that it hurt you. That's a fact. So back to my example at the beginning. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and said something that surprised you and that you regretted as soon as you said it? In the heat of the fight, you said something not so nice things and you were sorry for them as soon as you said them, as soon as the words came out of your mouth. Out of nowhere, devastating words pierced the soul in an unsuspected loved one. And as you calm down, you apologize and tell the other person that you did not mean what you said. You want to bring the relationship back to some state of health. You want to repair the damage you have done. And so you sincerely let them know you did not mean what you said. But the problem is, at the moment you said it, you did mean it. Because as Luke 6.45 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20 stated, For what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. And we've all seen this happen. We've all felt the pain of words spoken in anger. We have all wounded others with our hearts overflow, our words. Even today, in some way, we are all volcanoes waiting to erupt. And so we need to learn to guard our hearts. More accurately, maybe guard against our hearts. We need to learn how to monitor what is going on in that secret place, because it has the potential to go public at any moment. When we look at the condition of the heart, we want to see a healthy heart, spiritually healthy. 
relationally healthy. But most often we see one or more of a basic six kinds of hearts that have been wounded and thus are not healthy and because of that can release words and actions that wound and even destroy others. Six types of severely wounded hearts that can speak and sometimes surprise you when they do. Spiritual and emotionally heart issues need to be dealt with. So the following heart conditions begin to arise because we have neglected to take care of our hearts, neglected to guard our hearts. And these six hearts work in stages. We begin at stage one, and if the diagnosis is ignored, we move further to stage two and three, uh, all along until we end up at the last stage. So as I go through the outline of each of these six hearts, once you feel that you no longer connect to the stage I'm talking about, you were probably at the previous stage and have not reached that other stage. The good news is, wherever you are, there's hope for God to breathe change if you are open. So six types of hearts. Number one, broken heart. This is where it all begins. Everyone on the planet has a broken heart to some degree because we're all broken to some degree. The broken heart is a condition that arises when those who were supposed to love us didn't. They either released harmful actions against us or they just simply neglected to act in loving ways that are needed. This comes about because we've not received love or given love perfectly can be as simple as not remembering a time when your father said, I love you. A broken heart leads people to be severely insecure. And once we recognize that we have a broken heart and that we are insecure, we should ask God for a greater revelation and experience of his love for us. As you see, a broken heart truly prevents us from experiencing God's love, from loving ourselves, and from loving others because a broken heart makes us insecure. If not dealt with, you go do the second one, a fearful heart. Any area of brokenness makes room for fear to enter. Every area of insecurity and brokenness has a work of fear attached to it. Insecurity and a broken heart is the land where fear loves to dwell. And those with a fearful heart become trained to avoid any past pain from reoccurring. Believes, believers fail to remember that love has a powerful effect and that it casts out fear. Love and fear displace each other. Love casts out fear. Fear will push out love. When I am living in the divine sense of knowing I am loved, and allowing that love to settle within myself when I am rooted and grounded in love, fear has no ability to access my being. So the answer to a fearful heart is to receive the love of God. Even in the last days, Jesus said, men's hearts will fail because of fear. Fear will tag team on a broken heart to keep us focused on our past hurts as our story for the future and therefore we will live with a fearful heart. Those with a fearful heart not only struggle to walk in love regarding themselves, they struggle to embrace 
experiences and be fully present. Fearful hearts become hypersensitive and constantly live to avoid their hearts being hurt or exposed. When you don't deal with a broken heart, it will become a fearful heart because of the insecurity a broken heart brings. And if you have a fearful heart and don't deal with it, you will end up with an angry heart. As our fears remain intact, the stress and the insecurity adds on another layer on top of the fear, and that's anger. And the anger comes in to defend our brokenness and keep anyone away who might possess, pose sorry, a potential threat to us. All anger stems from unresolved brokenness. Very little of the anger has anything to do with the current situation or the current subject. It has way more to do with a past wound, a brokenness that has led us to a heart that is full of fear and thus insecurity and therefore has never been addressed. So many attempt to use anger management as a solution, yet that is all they end up doing, attempting to manage it, when in reality they should be removing this battle. But we cannot remove something that we have not allowed to become, that we have allowed to become a defense mechanism. An angry heart left unaddressed will eventually carry hate along with it. Yet the target of hate is always mainly is not mainly others. This is not this is a work of self-hate. The person may be angry with a past relationship. The person may be angry with a family member. <clears throat> or with life's disappointments, but the target of their fury is against themselves. They're angry at themselves, and the anger stays bottled up. And when it's not bottled up, it, bottled up, it lashes out on others, and the root is that they have come to hate themselves. So we have a broken heart because all of us are broken, and if we don't deal with that broken heart, and learn how to receive the love of God and deal with that heart, then it becomes a fearful heart because brokenness leads to insecurity and insecurity leads to fear. So the second heart is a fearful heart. And again, love is the answer. Love will displace the fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. And if you don't deal with the fearful heart, it becomes an angry heart, and in reality, the root of your anger is that you're angry at yourself. Anger stems from that unresolved brokenness and that unresolved hurt. If we don't deal with the angry heart and keep everything bottled up, it will lash out at others in time, but the root of it is that you have a hatred against yourself and that leads to a hopeless heart. When we walk through life overcompensating for our brokenness and serving our fears every day, we get exhausted. We can only be angry for so long until you hit an exhaustion stage and depression sets in, energy becomes low, irritability becomes high, and at this faith point, your faith becomes weary. The promises of God seem too far away. Brokenness looks out of hand. Hope becomes weak. Our minds become so vulnerable to every negative thought that crosses the airwaves, and we experience hopelessness.
This is where people develop a hope-deferred condition. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So this is a spiritual sickness that can even lead to physical sickness. Hope is a lifeline for our life, and when it seems distant, when it seems out of reach, when it has been delayed too long, we suffer the effects of that, and that is a hopeless heart. And people at this stage have neglected to face their brokenness, they have neglected to face their fears, and they have neglected to deal with their anger, and so now they have hopelessness. And that leads to a fifth kind of heart, a hard heart. At this stage, even hope deferred can be healed by walking through each one of the previous stages and releasing the fear, releasing the anger we have towards others, towards God, and towards ourselves. But when we neglect to do that, we develop another dangerous condition, a hard heart. At this stage, the heart has lost its ability to believe. A callousness forms around the heart, so even when a passionate message of freedom is delivered, their eyes are veiled and their hearing is dulled. Hard hearts don't hear encouragement or hope anymore. Hard hearts are not growing in their walk with Jesus. Hard hearts do not forgive. Do not forgive themselves, do not forgive others, do not forgive God. Hard hearts do not experience emotions. Hard hearts refuse to embrace change. Hard hearts live in their past. Hard hearts are usually proud hearts, unable to admit that they need help, unable to receive help. Hard hearts are simply repeating the pattern they have lived for years. They live on default. Hard hearts don't let others into their lives. They refuse to be fully known. And it takes the divine work of the Holy Spirit and a person's willingness for a hard heart to be opened. The only solution to a hard heart is the act of humbling ourselves before God as well as before others. And when we do this, we position our hearts for the hardness to melt off and tenderness to take residence. However, if we don't do this, if pride keeps us from doing this, we come to stage six, or heart number six, which is a numb or checked out heart. Getting to this stage is really deadly. Of all the people I've worked with for over 50 years now, the numb and checked out heart has been one of the most challenging to help. When the heart is engaged, the possibilities are endless for change. But when it reaches stage six, where it's numb, it has no feelings, and it's checked out, it can seem nearly impossible to break through. The numbed or checked out heart has also become a more common condition today. Although the previous heart conditions listed here are dangerous when left unchecked, this stage is lethal. You can minister to these people, you can love these people, and you will still get no nothing, and you will get nowhere. You will get very little engagement and very little heart connection. You can see it in their eyes when you're talking to them. Lights are on, but no one's home. You try to keep a key area of their life, and they, you try to help a key area in their life, and they check out on you. They may be present in the room, but absent emotionally and relationally. People at this stage 
have either given up tending to their heart or never did so to begin with. Those who have become weary with their hurt, their pain, their anger, their fears, their insecurity can often slide into a place of numbness. Their pain becomes so unbearable to confront that checking out becomes a programmed way of living. They can go to work, pay their bills, and say thank you, but inside they're numb. So the Bible states in Proverbs in Psalms 139, Bible states in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist is asking God to search his heart. God does not need your permission to do so, but does appreciate an invite. The psalmist did not let God do this because God needed to know the condition of the psalmist's heart. God already knows the condition of our hearts. The psalmist is literally saying to God, please reveal to me the condition of my heart. And then the psalmist asks for God's help. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's the beginning of the solution to the condition of the heart that often surprises us with what comes out of our heart. You will need others involved, your friends, a spouse, church leader, but you start with God. For without experiencing His love in a fresh and new way, and having a fresh revelation of the condition of your heart, you will just continue on, continue on saying things that surprise you and wound others.